0: Lord, thank you for this opportunity to fellowship together this morning, Father. We ask your blessing on this service and on the people that are here as well as those watching the stream online. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, I'm standing back here with Pastor Steve, and I look up at the screen, and it said, Righteousness with Rick Weifel's. And I thought, wow, if that's not an oxymoron. And that got me thinking about oxymorons. And so my favorite oxymoron sentence is, on the green blackboard, they're showing jumbo shrimp, and it's awful good. Usually... Pastor Rick will come up and there'll be an inspiring story to lead us right in. And I was not creative enough to do that, but I did come up with a quick story and a test question. So the quick story is a kindergarten teacher was walking around her classroom while her students drew pictures. One little girl was scribbling so intently that the teacher asked what she was drawing. The little girl replied, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus. The teacher said, oh, honey, nobody really knows for sure what Jesus looked like. The little girl, without missing a beat, responded, they will in a minute. (laughs) And now we have a test question. What kind of car did the apostles drive? And the answer is a Honda. And we know this because in the book of Acts, it says that the apostles were all in one accord. (laughs) All right, so let's start with a nice, very basic timeline, okay? We are born, we live our lives, and then we die. This timeline is experienced by those who do not know the Lord. Those who've not been saved, those who are not born again. Now, for those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we experience a somewhat modified timeline. We are born again, and this is called justification. We live our lives Serving the Lord, endeavoring to improve our service to the creator of the universe and endeavoring to grow in the Lord. And this life process is known as sanctification. And then we die and pass into eternity with the Lord. And this is glorification, which none of us have experienced. When we are born again, And when we are justified, that means that God sees us as justified, just as if we'd never sinned. And so that brings us to our actual main topic this morning. We'll be looking at the word righteousness. What is it? What is righteousness? Righteousness and the word righteous appear about 540 times in the Bible, Faith, faithfulness, and faithful appear about 348 times. So that means there's about one and a half times as many scriptures regarding righteousness as faith. So righteousness is a very important topic. There are several definitions of righteousness. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines righteousness as acting in accord with divine or moral law. Free from guilt or sin. Kind of like being justified. So how is righteousness achieved? So we're going to look at a few approaches about being righteous enough to get to heaven. And I can tell you up front, none of them work. We'll start with religion. Previously, I had the opportunity to speak regarding my upbringing in the Catholic faith, and I shared that up to the age of 23, I firmly believed that I was saved. I'd met new friends here on Maui who were Christians, and when they invited me to accept Jesus as my Savior, I actually held up my hands and I said, I'm in, I'm okay, I've been baptized. Almost like you guys got it wrong. It was my belief that I was right with God. And it's due to the fact that my parents had had me baptized as a baby in a Catholic sacrament. I believed I was right with God because of my subsequent participation in various sacraments like communion, You know, stations of the cross, confirmation, and partaking in other sacraments like confession, where the priest would absolve one from their confessed sins, followed by a litany of prescribed prayers: ten Our Fathers, five Hail Marys, four Acts of Contrition. So you'd leave the confessional, you go out there, and you do that. Now you get up, and it's like, I'm sin free. Actually, I'm deceived. And then there's also the last rites. When the priest absolves you of all the sins of your life on your deathbed, assuring your salvation and passage to heaven. It's a religious approach to righteousness, and it's based on accomplishing these rituals, these works, things we can say we accomplished in order to be right with God. But in Matthew chapter 7, we see Jesus' reaction to religious efforts in his name. Verse 22 says, Many will say to me in that day... What day is that? Judgment day, I think. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. Jesus replied, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Whew. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you want to follow in your Bible, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. First John's right after 2 Peter. You might still have that bookmarked. First John chapter 3, verse 4. And it says, Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Well, Jesus said, You who practice lawlessness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know. That he, the Lord, was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. Maybe a definition of righteousness. Whoever sins has neither neither seen him or known him. Jesus is saying, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. It's clear that religious efforts and works are not biblical approaches to righteousness, you know, being free from guilt or sin, being right with God. So the second one, what about my good outweighs my bad? If I do more good than bad in my life, won't this Tip the scales in my favor? Not necessarily being religious, but just being more good than bad. In Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 6 and 7, it says, but we are all like an unclean thing. We are all like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags we all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away so regardless of our good works or our righteousnesses our iniquities or our bad will always outweigh our righteousness works or our good works our bad will always outweigh our good according to the Bible. In fact, the Bible says in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, undeserved favor. You didn't earn it. Saved through faith. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. So you didn't deserve it but you believed and you're saved not because of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not works, lest anyone boasts. You're not going to work your way, good or bad, into heaven. Also in Galatians, Paul wrote in Galatians two twenty twenty one. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So he's not putting aside the undeserved favor from God Because he realizes that righteousness can't come from the law. So, that approach, good outweighing bad, to righteousness, that it's just not valid. And so, then we come to a third one wealth and health as an indicator of righteousness. In some cultures, being wealthy was an indicator that one was right with God. I am healthy, wealthy, and wise. Therefore, I am blessed by God, and thus I am righteous. And this was an accepted truth in the culture at the time of Jesus. How about if you're sick and you're poor? Is this an indication that one is not blessed and not righteous, not right with God? In John, Gospel of John, chapter 9, it tells of Jesus healing a blind man. As Jesus walked by, he saw a man who was blind, saying, Rabbi, his disciples said, Who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? The assumption was the man was unwell because of unrighteousness, either his own or his parents. Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That's the reason the man was born blind, because Jesus was now going to heal him. In so he healed him of his blindness and the righteousness or lack of in the blind man or his parents had nothing to do with his being born blind. And the other extreme, what about being rich? The rich young ruler in Luke 18, verse 18, he came right up to Jesus and he asked what to do to inherit eternal life. Basically, he's asking how how to be saved. And Jesus mentioned the keeping of the commandments and the rich young ruler responded that he had kept them from his youth. The conversation ended with Jesus saying, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the rich young man heard this advice from our Lord, he was sorrowful, for he was extremely rich. When Jesus saw that he had become sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven confusing words, but really in that culture if you were rich, you must be blessed if you are blessed, you must be right with God and Jesus is saying, nope it's actually harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for some impossible feat, like a camel going through the eye of a needle The rich young ruler put more importance on his personal material package than he did on his eternal salvation. And that was the point Jesus was making. So that was not a valid approach to righteousness. So the people around him were stunned because of the fact that he said that rich people can't go to heaven. Totally Opposite what everyone believed. So they said, Well, who can be saved? And Jesus said, With man, it's impossible. That just killed every option for man to reach his own righteousness. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So he's showing, hey, you can't do it, but we have a plan. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven now the Pharisees in the eyes of the common people they were the hat trick they hit all three they were considered to be religious they were considered that they did good works and that they were wealthy and Jesus said now you got to be better than that or it's not going to happen. You're not getting in. So I think a lot of people were a little confused with, with what the Lord was saying. So we see that riches does not make one righteous or right with God. And according to Jesus, God has another plan. So let's take a quick look at who Jesus is. I have a lot of colleagues and work associates out in there in the world who don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe in the Trinity. They might believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel's brother. Uh, it's amazing the different things that we see that people around us believe, and they're deceived. Now, Matthew's gospel, it shared the announcement of the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Mary will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Who then can be saved? So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So here, right in the beginning of the Gospels, we see the proclamation that this Child will be born, his name will be Jesus, he will save his people from his sins, and he's God. What else can we say regarding who Jesus is? In the Gospels, there are genealogies that tell us a lot about Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy goes back to Abraham. And that's important because it shows that Jesus is not only a son of Abraham and therefore a Jew, but Jesus is also a descendant of King David, qualifying Jesus as king. The Gospel of Matthew describes Jesus as king. The Gospel of Mark describes portrays Jesus as the suffering servant. Now, in the Jewish culture, servants did not have a genealogy. And there is no genealogy in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Luke, which was written by a physician, Dr. Luke, the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam shows man, shows Jesus as a man, which is how the Gospel of Luke portrays Jesus. And now my favorite, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, the genealogy reveals Jesus as God. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, the Word. And without him, nothing was made that was made. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Now in today's modern English, it'd be more like, whoa, God came down, put skin on. We saw it. We saw it. They're talking about glory. Glorification. So we see Jesus as God in the flesh, king of kings, fully man, and fully God. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, sin has been in the world. The Bible states in Romans that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the gift of God? The gift of God, the gift from God is God became a man put on skin, and paid the wages of skin, of sin. By dying on the cross for us, the righteous one came down from heaven and paid the ultimate price. Sort of like a man is in court and he has just been found guilty. And the judge Up above says, you are guilty, I condemn you to death. Then the judge stands up, comes down from his high place, takes off his glorious robes, and he says, I will die in your place. It's a similar situation. The Bible message says that if you believe faith, that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to provide complete forgiveness of sins, you will be saved. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes faith in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Remember the rich young ruler was asking, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So what actually happens regarding righteousness once we believe and trust in Jesus? Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's, Adam's, disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, Jesus, Jesus, shall many be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here we're seeing biblical appropriate approaches to the state of righteousness. My personal Take on righteousness, on the righteousness of God. There's no Satan, no Satan existing. There's no temptation. There's no awareness of sin. There's no knowledge of good and evil. None of us have ever experienced righteousness. The only time I'm aware of people truly being righteous is Adam and Eve, walking in the garden with God prior to eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil and having their eyes opened. We don't know how long the state of righteousness existed with Adam and and Eve. We don't know how long they walked in the garden with God. When you're reading the Bible, God created everything, God created man, man sinned. It's almost like it happened the next day. But we don't know that. The Bible does not tell us, so we can't say. But we can look at a couple things. We, we know that the fall took place prior to the births of Cain and Abel. But we don't know the age of Adam at the time of their births. So we don't know how long Adam and Eve existed in that righteous state. We do know that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. So Seth was the next in line after Adam in this genealogy in Luke that led up to our Lord. So regarding how long Adam and Eve walked with God, it could have been one day For a hundred years or so, we're not told. But that state of righteousness that they existed in, existed. For only then, only then. It's really not important how long they were righteous and walked with God. But what's important is what was lost when they disobeyed God and ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They and all people to follow were now unable to be in God's presence. Moses. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights with God when Moses went back for the second issue, the second printing of the Ten Commandments. Up on the mountain, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And God told Moses, you cannot see my face. No man shall see me and live. So there's a change, there's a difference. When Adam and Eve were with God, they walked in the garden with him every day. But what God did for Moses, he hid him in the cleft of a rock, put his hand over it, and he walked by. And after he walked by, he took his hand away, and Moses saw the back of God. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 33. Now, when Moses came down the mountain this second time, his face shone. His face shone to the extent. That it frightened Aaron and all the children of Israel, so we just read that and no, all it frightened Aaron and all the people of Israel. Well, in exodus thirty eight we see there 's a counting of the people, and the men over the age of twenty were six hundred and three five hundred and fifty thousand men they 've extrapolated that the children of Israel, that population probably exceeded one million people. So here comes Moses down Mount Sinai. Now we don't really know where Mount Sinai is. But the mountain that they believe is the mountain of Moses, Jebel Musa, It's about 7,500 feet in elevation. Now take a look at Haleakalā. Haleakalā is about 10,000 feet, about three-quarters of the way up. So I don't think it was an hour's walk. I think it took some time. So here are one million people looking up at the mountain, and they see this glow coming down the mountain, and it's glowing so intently that they're scared. Oh, my God, what is that? In fact, they get down. They were so scared, they said, please, we have to cover your face. And they covered his face with a veil just so they could be in his presence. The Shekinah glory of God, proximity to God. Jesus shone. With Shekinah glory. At the transfiguration. It's almost like he dropped his skin suit. And revealed his true self. And the disciples that were there. Were completely blown away. By it. The apostle John tells us in Revelation. That Jesus appeared. Like the sun. Shining in its strength. So it wasn't a dying D-cell battery flashlight kind of illumination for any of these situations. Now, older ancient Jewish scribes have suggested in their writings that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were clothed in light because of their proximity to God. They were clothed in light. Now, that's not in the Bible, but it makes sense. We've seen the proximity to God, just looking at his backside with a hand protecting him. He shone so brightly. I mean, here comes Moses down the mountain, probably partly at night, even during the day. Imagine how Adam and Eve might have shown being in God's presence and what they experienced when they fell into sin after walking with God and being clothed in light possibly and they fell into sin, the classic I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Maybe that light went away. It's like, whoa, what have we done? Imagine righteousness from their point of view and then losing it, it, crushing, realizing what they'd lost. Genesis 15, Abraham is talking with God. And God said, look towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord. And and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Righteousness. Interesting, when Abraham died, he didn't go to heaven. Jesus had not yet died on the cross to pay for our sin. The wages of sin is death. So what God did is he gave Abraham a righteousness credit card. And he imputed righteousness to Abraham. So Abraham died, went to Abraham's bosom as any of the other Old Testament saints that were in Abraham's bosom. Righteousness was credited or accounted or imputed to Abraham. Now, believers in Jesus benefit because now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't go to Abraham's bosom. We're immediately with the Lord, experiencing glorification. Because God sees believers as righteous or being right with God. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together. And Lord, we ask that your saving grace just flows out, Lord, that, that your word reaches those those on the fence. We ask, Lord, that you tug at hearts. We thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to know you and to fellowship, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. All right. Amen.